that's actually what I'm spending more of my time on now, thinking about the points at which psychedelics, you know, might have to be kind of squared out a bit to like fit into the healthcare system and fit into the regulatory system. And then there's like pockets where we might actually be able to make space within the existing systems for psychedelics, Mm -hmm. or we might even be able to change, you know, push back on some of the issues in the existing system. So I think that's like a big area of interest for me. And on like the health economics side, there's Mm -hmm. some cool stuff about, you know, recognizing benefits beyond like just healthcare utilization and like societal benefits of health and stuff. And then, yeah, I think most of my time now, and it was reflected in our year in review for last year, is looking not just at what we need to do to get to approval, which, you know, Touchwood seems to be a given, at least for MDMA, hopefully, but like beyond approval and looking at access, yeah. right? Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the re-emergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with the trip report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests, including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. So we're sitting here in Denver, Colorado at the Psychedelic Science 23 conference put on my maps. It's the first one in at least four years. I think 2019 was the, the last one. Since you and I have started writing about this field, a lot has happened. Why don't we start with how did you get into writing and creating Psychedelic Alpha? Yeah, good question. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I grew up in a very non-psychedelic part of the world. And I don't mean that everyone was using psychoplastogens. I mean, no one was using any mind-altering substances. So I grew up in the countryside in England, um, went to study at London School of Economics, first person in my family to go to uni. Just kind of turned up there because I was interested in politics and it seemed like a good place to study that. Um, But wasn't very happy there. It was very corporate. Uh, Everyone expected us to go into finance or consulting. And in in my third year, my advisor said, well, they're starting this exchange program to UC Berkeley. Um, so why don't you apply? And if you get in, then you can go and then come back and finish up here. And if not, then you can transfer to, you know, the equivalent of like a liberal arts college where I'd probably have been happier. So I, I applied and I got it, turned up at Berkeley and my academic advisor there, well, he became my advisor, Sean Burns. He just basically inducted me into the history of social movements in the Bay Area. Uh, he gave me names of hippies, Black Panthers, you know, countercultural icons. Um, well, small icons, you know, not the ones we think of like Tim Leary, but, you know, the people that were doing a lot of the stuff on the ground um, sent me up to interview these people in the hills of Berkeley. Um, and the thing that kept coming up was psychedelics. And so this was not a psychedelic specific project? No, no, exactly. It was a history. It was this history of social movements in the Bay Area. So I even spoke to like a mathematician who unwittingly worked on the atom bomb. Um, and it, you know, when he realized what he had been working on, uh, he became part of the counterculture. Oh, wow. It was like all sorts of people. Anyway, so that's what started my interest in psychedelics. Like it was very much an interest in its role in the counterculture and perhaps even psychedelics role in kind of dissolving some of the political movements by encouraging people to embrace spirituality and stuff. Which, so yeah, it was kind of a, 
anthropological political focus came back to london finished my studies and went on to work for like a research institute that helped the government decide where to put cycle lanes effectively now that's what it boiled down to it had a fancy title and then one day i was on a call and we were deciding where to put the cycle lane in you know some random town that i'd never been to and didn't really have any connection to and i came across compass pathways and i came across their clinical trials and what they were doing and my first reaction was I won't swear, actually. I'll tone it down a bit. My, my first reaction was, what the hell is this? You know, the, you know psychedelics. When was this? Um, I don't know. It must have been maybe 2018, okay. 2019, maybe. But my first reaction was one of kind of horror. I was like, you know, this is, you know, the medicalization of the one thing that people have enjoyed for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. But then I kind of, you know, after the initial horror of like uh, seeing uh, psychedelics kind of be commercialized potentially, I then uh, began engaging with it and started thinking, you know, well, if we're going to have people, you know, like my parents in my hometown mm-hmm. taking psychedelics, it's probably only going to be in a medical model, right, where their GP suggests it um, and where it's paid for by the healthcare system. So, yeah, that initial kind of uh, reaction to like of, of fear kind of turned into one of e- intrigue, um, which led me to start the website mm-hmm. as Psilocybin Alpha. Cause and when did you when did you start it? I think I knew you were going to ask that. I, can't, I think it was early, early 2020, maybe. But I started it as psilocybin alpha because that's what I was looking at with Compass and everything. And it was just tracking the companies. Uh, but it was all anonymous because I still had this contract with well, one step removed from the government, basically. Um, and then I finally attached my name to it later in 2020. And then that's when I met you. And yeah. the rest is history. So. Yeah. And so talk me through the evolution of psychedelic alpha, starting as psilocybin alpha, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to a little bit your your own evolution of shock and horror at the prospect of commercialized psilocybin, but are there stages to your project that it's gone through? Has it been, you know, have you been aiming at the same sort of goal all along or tell me about the journey that you've that you've had there? Yeah, for sure. And also, you know, worth saying that much of the journey was helped by your writing as well, right? You know, you were keeping tabs on a very different kind of side of the space to me. So that was helpful as well. But I think the first task was really just trying to put all the information about these companies in one place. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a hard task in 2020. Yeah. It was maybe 10, 20 companies. And I think there was even a publicly traded company called Roadman Investments Group or something that was like <laughs> claiming to fund research. I mean, it was a wild west. Um, so I think, yeah, the, early, the first year was really just, you know, tracking those first IPOs. Like and that was really like, I, I market with like early 2020, yeah. right? There was like this kind of cambrian explosion it kind of coincided with COVID, obviously but there was just a massive explosion of mostly in canada these publicly traded companies or seemingly you know very quick to go publicly traded or reverse takeover type thing that was crazy that was wild sorry to interrupt your train of thought but like i just have a question i want to ask like did you have any sense of what you looked for at that point where you were like, okay, this is bullshit, and oh, this is actually an interesting project. Did you have like a filter at that point, or were you not really concerned about that? You were just gathering data at that point to, to kind of coalesce it. I mean, maybe it's like a British thing, but I think our bullshit sensor is like the basal rate of the bullshit sensor is always <laughs> slightly like lower, like we have a lower tolerance for it. So I think, you know, my reaction to a lot of these, you know, early publicly traded companies was one of skepticism, but also just one of excitement generally to like see uh, the fact that a psychedelic company could go public. 
but yeah, I think you know it was pretty obvious early on that a lot of companies were just you know press releasing things that were related to psychedelics. And then did you did you track the cannabis field at all prior to that? No, and that's actually was interesting because a lot of the analysts, especially investment banks, yeah, you know, they come from a cannabis background. Yeah, neither did I. I. I was completely oblivious to the the cannabis industry, quote unquote, and 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 I always felt like there was this. I always feel like I wasn't getting something, you know, because like the model that I had of how this field is emerging and then what I was seeing from, I don't know, what, what seemed like very, you know, professionally oriented investment firms or uh, analysts was very much like along this like a cannabis 2.0 type of movement. And I and early on, I thought, like, no, I don't think this is like how this is going to emerge. I wonder if you had a similar sort of feel like did you did you catch on to a, a, a major bifurcation between cannabis and psychedelics at, at some point yeah i think uh so i spent some time working at noetic fund which is a mm -hmm. psychedelic vc fund and i think yeah when i by the time i joined there which was probably late 2020 it had kind of become clear to me that you know this was very different to mm -hmm. any other model really um and it was very sim similar to kind of biotech and you know more life science investing so that's actually when I met Grant Pachanik, who's become a good, you know, very good friend and collaborator who helped me understand intellectual property yeah. and everything from trade secrets and data protection right through to patents. So uh, I think that was very clear to me that things like IP and stuff were going to yeah. be very central here, um, at least for like the commercial side of the space. Um, but yeah, and also just, you know, the issue was in the early days, a lot of the money that seeded a lot of these companies was coming directly from cannabis. So you know, a lot of the investors were looking to kind of replicate that model. But right. yeah, I think it quickly became apparent that that wasn't yeah. possible, right? So. Right. Sorry, I, I interrupted your hagiography of Psychedelic Alpha. So you, you started collecting data on all yeah. the companies. So that was the, that was the first kind of iteration, just trying to put everything in one place. And that's when Graham Pachanik and I made the patent tracker. Because mm -hmm. I was kind of like, there's all these patents being filed on psilocybin. I don't really know what to do with it from like a journalistic point of view. Right. And obviously Olivia Goldhill had done some like really good journalism on the early patents. Um, but yeah, I just thought there's some benefit to putting it in one place. And that led to meeting, you know, people like Shayla Love at Vice, who's now freelance, but, and she ended up, you know, running with that and, you know, through her own research as well. And so that was kind of interesting to me. So I thought, okay, so we can be this resource that puts everything in one place and then other people, whether it's an investor, entrepreneur, journalist, or an activist, you know, they can take this. So, yeah. And that's what led to like the decriminalization tracker yeah. and stuff like that. So, so wh what, do, what do you have now on the, on the site? You've got the patent tracker. Yeah, so we had the patent trackers for about four or five molecules. And I think, you know, we're about to just put up the whole patent tracker for all the different molecules that we have. Um, and then we have the drug, uh, no, the psychedelic drug policy reform map, which is basically a US map that shows all the initiatives in states and cities that have passed. So they could be, you know, citizen-led initiatives or kind of yeah. political initiatives. And then we actually have a worldwide map, which me and Graham had the first draft of like two years ago, I think. Wow. Um, but we're finally getting to the point where we're going to publish it next week, hopefully. So it's oh, like nice. it's in the final draft stage. But that shows all the countries around the world and like the current status of psychedelics and some of the reforms underway. So you have that. And then we have a bunch of other stuff, like some stuff on Oregon and yeah, yeah things like that. But I think, you know, really, you know, the next situation of this website was to actually have more confidence in having more of a voice and like a kind of journalistic yeah. edge to it. Like I definitely don't count myself as a journalist, but maybe like an analyst. Yeah. So yeah. I think the first year or two was really just like me not having the, you know, enough, 
enough opinions about things because I felt like I needed to learn more. Yeah. And now it's sort of like trying to take sides, not sides, but stances and sure. opinions and becoming a, you know, having a bit more of a almost yeah. critical voice or like an analyst voice. Yeah. yeah. Do you mind sharing some, maybe one or two opinions or stances or perspectives? Like, and maybe I'll set this up a little bit more. Like the, the metaphor that I tend to use to describe this psychedelic field ecosystem movement renaissance industry whatever we want to call it is the parable of the blind men and the elephant right where they're they're all sort of in contact with a different part of the animal and because they're blind they can't see the rest of it and so one thinks it's a a snake one thinks it's a tree trunk one thinks it's a boulder and that's kind of how i see the psychedelic field because we have policy initiatives that are either state or or, or even municipal, federal. Um, we have the biotech field where there's you know drug development and research happening in a commercial setting. There's the academic setting. There's the, I'm reluctant to use the term the underground, but any sort of like a market use cases, services that are provided in, in you know, on the one hand retreat settings, but on the other hand, just, you know, completely illegal and or gray areas. Um, do with that what you will. What 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 is interesting to you? I, I have the problem that I think it's all super interesting, and I'm interested in everything. But I'm a, a, a jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. And so I wonder, like, where where are you spending most of your time? Sort of researching, thinking, talking to people. What what part of the elephant are you working on? Yeah, for sure. Just before that, I think uh, yeah, I like that parable, and also I think there's a a disappointing amount of kind of uh, dogmatism or like uh, backing into corners in the space where like, you know, everyone wants to side themselves either on the psychoplastogen side or on kind of Gould Olin's side, which is super exciting. And then you get this Turk B paper that comes out and everyone's like, oh, throw everything out. Like, this is a new theory. I think it's like, you know, the whole point of psychedelics is kind of to expand your mind and open your mind. And it's kind of like, it's kind of encourage people to just double down and place bets on individual yeah. theories. So I think that's kind of, disappointing and then the same with like the patent debate so you know i've been quite involved in that and like talking about it and you know but there's just a lack of nuance like people yeah. are saying that like you know if you sort of like engage with the issues of some psychedelic patents then you're just an anarchist who doesn't believe in patents at mm -hmm. all and obviously mm -hmm. i do i advise a bunch of venture funds and mm -hmm. companies right like obviously i accept and appreciate the value of patents but you know i think you know the issues we're seeing in the psychedelic industry around things like ip are just reflections of or, or caricatures of bigger issues in the patent system and right. the incentives of drug development system. So I think that's actually what I'm spending more of my time on now, thinking about the points at which psychedelics, you know, might have to be kind of squared out a bit to like fit into the healthcare system yeah. and fit into the regulatory system. And then there's like pockets where we might actually be able to make space within the existing systems for psychedelics, mm -hmm. or we might even be able to change, you know, push back on some of the existing some of the issues in the existing system. So I think that's like a big area of like interest for me. And on like the health economics side, there's mm -hmm. some cool stuff about like, you know, recognizing benefits beyond like yeah. just uh, healthcare utilization and like societal benefits of yeah. health and stuff. And then, yeah, I think most of my time now, and it was reflected in our year in review for last year, is looking not just at what we need to do to get to approval, which, you know, Touchwood seems to be a given, at least for MDMA, hopefully, um, but like beyond approval and looking at access, yeah, right? So right. I think being from the UK where we have, you know, a single payer, the yeah. NHS, 
uh, I was just speaking to a researcher downstairs. Like, I think, you know, I'm very skeptical that yeah. they'll pay for it because, like, mm. they barely even pay for talk therapy at the moment, yeah. which is very evidence-based. So I think these sorts of things, like, how do we engage with payers like like the NHS and, like, how do we show them that this could be cost-effective, but also having the kind of open-mindedness that what if we can't show that psychedelic therapy is cost-effective? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to, like, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, accept that? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and So, yeah, and then I also think the way that you kind of resolve those conflicts is also being an advocate for decriminalization yeah. and even legalization because if we can't fit psychedelics in the med- medical model right. at least like people should have a venue to use them especially yeah. if we prove that they're safe and effective so yeah. so yeah i think just thinking about these things in the future that we're going to need to integrate into the medical model and also like helping create a safety net for yeah. all of those people who are inevitably going to try psychedelics and it's not just going to be hippies and countercultures sure. and people using it in a digital setting, it's going to be people with complex disorders, like yeah. people with PTSD who right. can't get it through yeah. their health insurance. So, you know, who do we speak to? Do we need pharmacists to have a better understanding, like what our friends at the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association yeah. are doing? Do we need GPs to have, yeah. you know, CME education here? So all of that, like there's so much to be do- done and like I'm not the person to do it, but trying to like connect those dots. Sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, one of the primary kind of defining features features or dynamics of the space is like we have this almost unbelievably effective PR machine that is like decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. The science academic, you know, work that's happening, well-known people like Michael Pollan or so it's emerging into the, into the culture in a way that the organizations and the, and the groups that are kind of, pushing that science forward are not equipped to capture the demand that they're creating. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's maybe too pejorative a way of thinking about it, but we're at, we're in Denver right now. There's 11,000 people that are at this conference at at, at that maps is it's a, it's a cultural phenomena and maybe we're looking at it very closely, but it is burgeoning out into the culture, into the mainstream. And to your point, more and more people are going to be reading about and are already are reading about hypothetical benefits at this point. I'm, I'm using that term hypothetical. I don't know if that's appropriate, but you know what I mean? It's, it's early in the, in the, and I suppose from like your, your perch of we're, cause we're in similar positions where we're watching the whole field in a way and trying to digest it and make sense of it. And you said you don't have solutions, but are there ideas, are there companies or organizations that, you're fond of or you'd like to see that maybe fill in some of those gaps? Yeah, good question. I think it's everything right through from like community-based stuff, like, you know, what Fireside Project are doing with their, mm-hmm. you know, harm reduction phone line. And it's also, you know, groups like DanceSafe and groups who have been doing this for a long time who right. probably have the understanding of what the quote-unquote underground looks like. Yeah. Um, but then also I do think that, you know, it is also working with existing you know, groups in the medical model, like, you know, like uh, boards for mm-hmm. psychiatrists or whatever. Or, uh, and, and yeah, continuing medical ed- education, for example, I think, yeah. you know, that's an important area, right? For like uh, dealing with the inevitably difficult experiences that people are going to have that they're yeah. going to present to their doctor. Yeah. yeah. And we can't just have, you know, someone presenting to the doctor in the village where I grew up who's going to yeah. be like, well, why the hell did you take out this thing? You know, he's going to be like, what? You did what? Um, like, they're going to have no idea how to deal with that, yeah. right? So, uh, yeah, I think, that's yeah i think it's both ends it needs to go from you know grassroots grassroots organizing through to i actually think in denver they have this 
you know, if someone calls in, maybe even if they call into 911 and someone's having like a mental health crisis, oh, they have like a separate group that goes oh. out and they have incredible like success rates. Like they don't involve yeah. law enforcement. Yeah. And yeah, so stuff like that, I think, like having like community-based crisis response. Yeah. Like, and, and like, you know, Jules Evans writes about this a lot, right? Like uh, ecstatic experiences mm-hmm. and like difficult experiences. So yeah, I think, you know, stuff like that is interesting. But yeah, I think it needs to happen at both ends, right? Like it needs yeah. to be co- community-based and also in the medical model because different people will access different systems, right? So. It's 2023 right now. Let's fast forward five years. Paint a picture for how you see the world of psychedelic medicine, policy, culture, whatever, however you want to take that. So let's take the medical model of like psychedelics. And I think I would hope in five years time we have enough data on, you know, the durability of the effects of psychedelics. So hopefully we will be able to show that psychedelics, you know, help put people in remission from things like treatment resistant depression for, you know, reliably long periods of time. And I think that's the point at which, you know, we're going to see more widespread payer acceptance and reinvestment. Mm-hmm. Like that's the optimistic scenario. And I also think by then it'll be interesting to see what happens with kind of non-hallucinogenic psychedelics and mm-hmm. whether they open up this whole new toolbox of mm-hmm. drugs and scaffolds for things like inflammatory related disorders. Like again, being optimistic, we might have found some gems there. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of it will, will fall by the wayside, but there might be something interesting there. Um, and then in the policy world, you know, my hope would be that this kind of worldwide shift we're seeing towards harm reduction and towards, you know, treating drug use as a healthcare issue, not a legal issue or like a law enforcement issue. Hopefully that will be much further along, right? Like I think this summer in the UK at uh, music festivals, the government's intervened to say there can be no drug checking um, at all, which is like a massive step backwards, right? But in other countries, you know, countries like Portugal and even countries like Scotland within the UK, um, there are much more progressive Mm. harm reduction policies. So I think, you know, hopefully within five years, we'll see more countries getting on board with that. And we'll see, you know, advocates at higher and higher levels, like the ex-Prime uh, Minister of New Zealand is now like a huge advocate for mm-hmm. harm reduction, mm-hmm. despite the fact that when she was in power, she, you know, was quite sort of not anti-drug, but was quite anti-harm reduction. So I think, I think the tide is turning. So I'd hope at like the policy level, there's obviously much less criminalization. And then, but I think, you know, the other issue, obviously, which Carl Hart talks about a lot is, you know, psychedelic exceptionalism, where, mm-hmm. you know, we spend our whole time looking at like psychedelic policy reform, but obviously there's a whole bigger world of drug reform, which we should probably be yeah. you know, seeing ourselves as part of. So I think yeah. I would hope in five years, you know, we're all pushing for broader drug reform rather than just these kind of narrow mm. bipartisan psychedelic yeah, policy yeah. reforms. So yeah, so yeah there's a assortment of uh, optimistic outlooks, but yeah. <laughs> and, and you said it looks as though MDMA will, it's looking like it's looking good from a FDA approval perspective just from a kind of finger in the air kind of perspective, what gives you that sense? Other than, I mean, obviously there's good data from the phase three trial. It seems like they have, I'm not sure what the, the, the agreement is in place where if they reach certain benchmarks yeah. in that, then the FDA has sort of almost like an obligation to approve it. Could, they've agreed to, yeah. They've agreed. yeah Can you talk a little bit about maybe that? Yeah, we wrote about it in the year of year. I think it's an SPA or something, right? Special, special protocol assessment. Yeah. But yeah, MAPS negotiated that with FDA to kind of say, you know, this is our trial design and yeah. they go back and forth and then they reach an agreement. And if we reach, you know, this primary endpoint or this statistical significance, then in theory, it should be approvable. Uh, and yeah, I mean, every 
publicly disclosed um, news we've had about the research sounds positive, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't think there's any reason to believe it won't. Yeah, I mean, do you know any reason? I, I, I don't, except that whenever I talk to, I was just talking to somebody and we both kind of agree that like we really enjoy talking to people who are outside the sphere of psychedelics. It could have actually been you. I don't know if we did. We talk about this yeah, five I mean, downstairs. I, I can't remember. <laughs> but when you're when you're kind of getting somebody like the quick and dirty, you know, Cliff's notes of this field, because again, I I think it's novel and unique because of the history, because of the experience that is engendered with these compounds, because of the therapeutic potential, because of the regulatory red tape and the burden that that has created, and the politically motivated effort that that drug, I should say drug reform is just predicated on politically motivated things. Um, getting somebody up to speed on that is like a very like, you can kind of see like the aha moments for somebody like, oh, I thought it was, you know, very much like cannabis or it was, you know, oh, this is what it was. Someone thought that the recent ballot initiative in Colorado was mandating insurance coverage for psychedelics. Like that was an actual opinion that somebody had. And it was so far from you know, any reality. And so, well, let me, let me put it this way. I, I have no idea where that tangent went. It was kind of good. Oh, this I'm is sure. what I was going to say. Somebody asked me, I think, if a new president comes in that's not favorable, and this was in the U.S. context, is the power such that they could rescind the FDA's decision? Or, you know, does whoever is in political power in a, in a certain jurisdiction kind of dictate the the FDA and the, you know, the regulatory approval process in that capacity. And normally I think the answer is like very obviously no, right? Like it's a very separate kind of thing, but this has a history, right? There's a history of psychedelics. There's baggage, cultural, political, and otherwise. And I wonder, do you, does that cross your mind? Are there any, are there any outlier scenarios other than data, you know, being insufficient come into play or is that, a little bit more uh, uh, paranoid thinking on my part. No, I don't know. I think it's an interesting point. I think maybe without knowing anything really about the U.S. legal system, maybe the point of meddling could be the rescheduling, right, which is mm. up to the DEA. Because from what I understand, that happens automatically after FDA approval mm-hmm. in maybe half of the states. Mm-hmm. But then the other half have to actually do it through their state, through the state assembly. Right. So maybe there could be some meddling there. And, you know, in the U.K., obviously, we have a history of... Um, the government ignoring the advisory positions of you know mm-hmm. drug advisory groups so yeah maybe but i think uh this would be an interesting one to talk with matt zorn about yes uh, yes so if you haven't got him coming on you definitely should but, I, I i should but I he'll, should. he'll know all of the a potential very opinionated ways. uh yeah. person in yeah. this space and but sure. very knowledgeable on the yeah. on that side of things so yeah okay Good. ask a lawyer <laughs> 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 and, and definitely not a British guy. Don't ask a British lawyer. A bar- Don't ask a barrister. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the point you made earlier about the NHS and not not covering a lot of treatments. I, I, I stepped into one of the, the workshops downstairs and the panelist was responding to a question about basically consumer packaged goods, sort of like a, a retail model of of psychedelics and she thought it was a completely horror like it it, it it gave her just the word a nightmare i think is the word she used because we don't have data yet we need more data and we need to roll this out sort of intelligently and cautiously and she said something to the effect that insurance coverage creates equitable access mm-hmm. and i hear something like that and i'm like you know that 
in theory is how it's supposed to work, right? But I know that at least in America, medical bankruptcy is a major contributor to personal financial ruin. Bills that people accrue because of, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to edit this out, but I see the insurance industry writ large, at least in America, as a bit of a pariah in the sense that both providers and patients are squeezed out of the equation in such a way that any pointing to insurance as a future means of equitable access, and maybe this is going to go back to the point about decriminalization, kind of misses the larger kind of data of, of what the current state of reimbursement and payer policy actually is. Yeah, like there's obviously huge issues in the American system with the quality of insurance, right? Like, you know, will a, you know, average insurance plan ever cover psychedelic therapies? You know, will it, only, will it be reserved for the, you know, the, the better plans? There's also issues with like out of network providers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even if your plan does cover it, you know, you could see a situation where your, your copay or deductible, whatever it is, is uh, not your deductible, but your out of pocket expenses mm-hmm. are still, you know, in the thousands of dollars. And the, the average American doesn't have a th- thousands of dollars in their bank account. Um, so yeah, I think, especially when you think of, you know, the mental health care inequity in terms of income and people who have serious mental health disorders, yeah, it's concerning. But I think this is, again, why we need to think about engaging with these issues early, right? And yeah. dealing with providers like the VA or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, providers like Medicare and Medicaid. And yeah, in the UK, it's, you know, the NHS or nothing, really. Mm-hmm. Like, as we've seen with Spravate, uh, Scotland covers Spravate, but England and Wales don't. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, you know, in the case of Spravatos, I mean, it's because they feel like they're getting a bad deal from right, Jan- Johnson right. Johnson, uh, Jansen. They don't think it's worth the price. And, right. you know, the evidence isn't there. And I, you know, don't really disagree with Nice's yeah. opinion there. But, you know, you can see in the case of psychedelic therapy, if they're just going to monetize the benefits to the patient and the healthcare, like healthcare use, um, like healthcare costs, direct healthcare costs, um, but they're not going to look at the broader societal benefits of productivity and, you know, lack of uh, yeah. social exclusion, then it might not be cost effective. So I think, again, yeah, it's just like pushing the National Institute for Care Excellence in the UK to like adopt this societal view, which, you know, is the gold standard and mm-hmm. has been advocated for years, but it's not been done. So yeah. I think it's just stuff like that, like pushing for, you know, more holistic mon- like cost benefit analyses. Yeah. It's, it's boring stuff like that. But yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, there is you know, a good argument to be made. But even in that case, you're going to need some sort of legalization or decriminalization decriminalization because, you know, there might be like a million patients in the US a year that are like eligible for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD Mm -hmm. from like a clinical point of view Mm -hmm. on label. Mm -hmm. And that's a tiny portion, right? Like it's a huge impact, but it's still a tiny portion of people. So yeah, yeah, I think think you're right, yeah. Can you tell us what's next for Psychedelic Alpha? What are you What are you working on? What are you looking forward to? I think the last three years or whatever it's been have been like a hamster wheel of trying to keep up with the news. It's like, insane. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk we, about we that? Just, we well, talked, we talked commiserated about, this, yeah. about this a little while ago. Yeah. I stopped writing the weekly news roundup because it was, I want to be careful with my words here, but it was having a negative impact on my mental health. Yeah. And... I thought that Jane at the Microdose oh, yeah. does a really good job. Yeah. I think you do a really good job. I thought, you know what? I want to do something else. So I'm going to write weird long form articles mm-hmm. and leave the news roundups to you guys. But 
sorry, I interrupted. But yeah, that that's crazy. It, it is. It's drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, I'm doing it like fortnightly at the moment. But I've like that's been like a big fortnightly is every two weeks. Yeah, sorry, is that not? <laughs> but I don't even like track it on for on. What do you say then? Bi week? No, every two weekly. How do you say that? What's well, it's, it's a weird one, right? Because it's bi weekly could refer to both twice a week and every other week. That's why I prefer fortnightly. Which I've adopt, I've I've learned from the Brits. I didn't realize that wasn't a thing. It's What's not the a Fortnite thing? to you. It's just the the Two game, weeks. the battle royale game that kids play. You know, the the British commentators. I'm a soccer fan, so I watch a lot of European uh, football, and so, you know, a lot of tournaments are on fortnightly schedules. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Let's keep that in. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, the plan. Yeah. So I kind of got sick of the weekly bulletin, and now I kind of want to step back and talk about broader issues like kind of slow journalism and like so i'm actually thinking about a quarterly publication at the moment which like gives us space to like prepare and like maybe all right like a deep piece of analysis mm-hmm. each quarter but also bringing in you know journalists and and also like having practitioners and researchers yeah. like give like readouts on like what they're working on yeah. like you know practice notes and stuff so i think that's like from the publishing side that's why i'd be like most excited about like mm-hmm. slowing down stepping back yeah looking at you know things like reimbursement you know dip, deep dives into different fields like you know psychedelics or chronic pain or you know stuff like that so mm-hmm. i think that's like my interest at the moment and then you know obviously psychedelic alpha is the front facing side of everything but then you know what keeps the lights on for us is consultancy so mm-hmm. you know this last couple of years have really been kind of trying a bit of everything and yeah. you know trying different areas of work so i think now it's also you know getting into roles that we find enjoyable and what are do you mind if i ask what those enjoyable consulting types of projects are yeah i think i was actually speaking to some people at lunch about this and i was saying i like doing the kind of like strategic stuff like the high level like strategy stuff that like like kind of what i think you do like special projects mm-hmm. but then when it gets to the point where they're like okay that all sounds like a great plan do it then i'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! It's like I enjoyed the chase, you know. And it's like once you, so I think like a, you know, so that's I do a, a bit of advisory for some funds mm-hmm. and early stage companies. I just really enjoy that because it's like yeah. you know it's the exciting part where you can yeah. have an impact. Um, and also, you know, my favorite thing in the world is you know bringing in friends and colleagues who are very smart at what they do, and you know mm-hmm. bringing them into companies. I think that's a big contrast to the early days of the space when you know it was a lot of passionate people. Uh, a lot of cannabis people running yeah. these companies, they weren't necessarily, you know, they were good at raising money, but they weren't necessarily experts, right? Yeah. Whereas now you're seeing people who are experts within their own field coming right. to psychedelics. Yeah. So I think that's also like just a function of legitimization as well. Like right. someone who is like an expert in like medicinal chemistry or something does feel like they can take a role they can in the take psychedelic into this. space. Yeah. So. But that's been really fun, like connecting those people with companies. So. <clears throat> Can you, do you have a sense of the job market in, in the psychedelic space? Because you do have a job sort of board on psychedelic yeah. alpha. What, what's sort of your read on how that's evolved over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, the volume of jobs has gone down a lot. So yeah, we have the job board and then we have a talent pool where people mm-hmm. can like sign up and you know put in like an abbreviated version of their resume or CV. And then we match them with like off market opportunities. And that's like just growing in size constantly, like mm-hmm. which suggests that there's a huge amount of like latent demand, yeah, yeah, for for jobs. But I think in the last year, just as a function of you know investment going Macros, down and yeah. yeah, cash runway shortening, it's been harder. And a lot of companies have actually, you know, you know, laid off a lot of people. Like you know, entire laid off. I think it was thirty percent of their workforce. Um, a lot of the companies have had to do that. So actually, now there's interest in like making a fewer number of hires, but quite strategic hires. So. Mm-hmm. 
we've like tried to help you know place c-suite people from mm. pharma or from life yeah. sciences right um to try and bring some of that expertise so yeah that's kind of been the big change like in the early days of the job board it was a lot of like you know kind of like associate level roles yeah, and yeah. that kind of thing um whereas now it's like a lot more like kind of placement stuff nice. um, but yeah the volume's gone down significantly and i think also you might see a lot of job listings from publicly traded companies yeah, yeah. Um, but often that's just for optics right they uh, want to look like they're growing so their investors see oh x company uh, has 20 jobs listed they must still be growing nicely smoking mirrors. Um, but it's yeah it's not always what it seems <laughs> there's a lot riding on the decision making that happens with things like drug labeling who needs to be in the room for mdma therapy a lot hinges upon what happens in that you know in that decision period do you do you have a sense of what those are like what is, what is the impact of a drug label? What is the impact of, of a decision of, of, of who needs to be in the room? How much is the FDA going to be able to either regulate or sort of recommend about the therapy component to that? Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting because obviously FDA doesn't regulate therapy, right? They regulate drug, regulate drugs and food. Um, so they, yeah, they're put in this kind of awkward position, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, the label is probably going to, you know, almost certainly going to require that MDMA be administered as part of this uh, protocol that looks will look you know probably almost identical to maps's phase three protocol mm-hmm. um, but yeah i think the key part of um the, the key like uh, kind of modulating factor will be the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy yeah. so the rems which is a program that fda requires when drugs have you know certain potential risks associated with them um to ensure that the benefits outweigh the risks um so that will probably include things like you know having specialist pharmacies dispensing the drug having yeah this uh, you know making sure that practitioners that deliver it are you know trained mm-hmm. likely in something that almost exactly resembles the maps training program mm-hmm. so things like that yeah and so now the, the the rems for spravato requires patients to be on premise for two hours is that yeah something right? like that something they just like have that. to be observed so that's that's so that observation thing, right? period could be with that could that be sort of like the the therapeutic time plus you know plus time on either end of that so it could be like a 10 hour sort of period that people are yeah are mandated to be on premise right yeah and then obviously they need someone to collect them and it doesn't look like the rems will require overnight stays because in maps's trials they had like a subset of patients yeah. who had the overnight stay and those who didn't and it didn't seem like there was any difference in safety so it doesn't look like that's going to happen which is good because that would obviously be a big cost but yeah i think you know all of those factors will have some impact on the price but generally you know the pricing and what well, the cost to deliver mdma therapy is just a function of obviously the labor involved mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the 40 hours or whatever of therapist time and then the other big kind of uh, unknown is how maps will price the mdma obviously because right. there's a sweet spot between you know making it cost effective for payers but then also obviously maps uh the nonprofit has this broader objective of recycling revenues into you know their broader kind of social programs so right. But that's what's particularly interesting about Maps, right? They, as it stands, they'll only have five or six years to recoup their investment because mm-hmm. they don't have patents, yeah. um, and also they have this bigger social mission, which yeah. is kind of interesting. So, whereas you know, by the time Compass Pathways comes up to a potential approval in a few years, they might have the second mover advantage, right? Where Maps has done all that legwork in you know getting codes mm-hmm. accepted by the AMA, so that there's reimbursement potential. You know, there's clinics, there's a network of clinics that can deliver psychedelic therapies. Um, and there's, you know, cultural, yeah. uh, not improvements, but cultural penetration within sure. doctors and patients. So 
and and obviously as it stands they will have something like you know 15 20 a monopoly because of their patents so yeah, yeah. i think it's this interesting situation where we see you know maps has obviously tried to do things very differently uh, in a very admirable way but now kind of the the rubber will hit the road in terms of recouping their costs in yeah. five years sure. um it could be a, a tall ask but yeah i think that we're coming like the 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 approval of mdma assisted therapy by the fda will be such a watershed moment for the field, for the idea, for the like e- e- cultural penetration. Um, do you see that as being like the next inflection point where we'll see more investment, more people come to the space, more people starting to open clinics? Do you have a sense of like what comes after after that? Like at whatever level of detail you you want to take that question? Yeah, I don't. I actually don't think that the approval will like cause this huge like bull run on the markets but also like influx of i think it will generate a lot of attention but i think you know the average investor that's you know writing the big checks that are funding drug development which Mm -hmm. is obviously hundreds of millions of dollars they will want to wait to see reimbursement and you Mm -hmm. know commercial viability Mm -hmm. like i think those investors would probably agree that it's looking like it's going to get approved yeah um and they just want to see the you know the business case and the sustainable business case so yeah i think and who knows how long that will take right Mm -hmm. like maybe systems like the VA will do it for the first year or two and then yeah. we'll see this durability data. And then, right. Yeah, so I think that's what's interesting. Like approval doesn't necessarily demonstrate anything other than that it's safe and effective, but right. cost effective and that commercially successful All is a whole other thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's ultimately what the average investor cares about, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously MAPS, most of its money has come from donors who don't mm-hmm. care about that, right? They care about getting mdma to people who need it yeah um but now we need to attract you know hundreds of millions of dollars of, of investment from people who are just investors right sure so it's like proving out that commercial case which comes with a whole host of difficulties and also ethical and moral dilemmas right as mm. we become more like mainstream farmers so yeah it's going to be an interesting time um big yeah. psychedelic yeah exactly yeah bill hicks had a great line or i think he i think he called it big lsd Anyway, what are you excited about for this week here at MAPS? You have a talk tomorrow. Tell me about your talk. Yeah, my talk is going to be an overview of the state of the sector. So I tried to break it out into, you know, how close we are to having something approved, how close we are to having the capacity to deliver it within the medical system. So, you know, the people and and physical spaces and then also reimbursement. So that's kind of how I structured it. And I actually had a bunch of slides on the non-medical models, so Oregon, Colorado, and the underground, but I didn't have time to include them, so maybe I'll just upload them. But can you tell us a little bit about what you found in like those adjacent areas, or particularly like Oregon and and the underground sort of writ large? What? Yeah, so I was kind of looking at it because I focused mainly on the medical model. But then I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, maybe if all goes well, there might be, as I said, like a million people a year or whatever that could ultimately benefit from right. MDMA therapy for PTSD. But obviously in Colorado and Oregon, just taking like the in-state population of adults, it's like, you know, 20, 30 times bigger than, than that. So I was like, okay, so there's a, there's a lot bigger pool of people who might be able to access this. Right. But then obviously, as we've seen in Oregon, the the way that the regulations are set up is going to lead to like virtually no access at yeah. all for like the average person. Um, so yeah, I think because of cost prohibitive. Yeah, because the cost of licensure and also you know things like like that we did see in cannabis, like the IRS two ATE, yeah. which prevents you writing off um, cost of goods sold on your taxes, um, and then yeah, just also like the regulation in Oregon obviously requires a certain amount of uh, facilitator time, mm-hmm. and 
rightly so, facilitators need to be paid well to mm -hmm. make it worth their time. So, so yeah, I think it's just created the system where, like Epic Healing, Eugene, I spoke to, the, I can't remember her name, but I spoke to the woman who runs it and she was quite upset because, you know, they announced that their pricing was going to be $3,500 for this one-on-one -on -one high dose session. And everyone on Twitter was berating her and saying that she was a shyster who was trying to like price yeah. gouge, which, you yeah. know, if you speak to her, it's immediately obvious that isn't true. Yeah. And she yeah. had documented the whole journey totally. and she was frustrated. But I know. So I think it's kind of upsetting because you see people whose hearts are in the right place right. and even they can't make it work yeah. in a way that's affordable. So, yeah. But I think Colorado is exciting in that sense because right. at least the way the statute was written, well, the, the bill was written, the measure, it allows for you know, more community-based settings, spiritual right. settings, and also allows for the co-location of psilocybin services in other, like, wellness facilities or healthcare facilities. So if the board, you know, continues in that spirit, yeah. it might be a lot more affordable um, yeah. and it might kind of legitimize, you know, more, like, the sort of use that exists today and, like, yeah. give legitimacy to that. Right, so I think right. that's super exciting. But again, like, it's up to the board now to work that out. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether the spirit of the bill carries through to reality so yeah i was just talking about those kinds of things and then also you know we're seeing a bit of a backlash in countries like spain and even yeah. to some extent in portugal oh really uh against like ayahuasca yeah. retreats and stuff yeah. which i don't know much about but i was gonna <laughs> add a slide on it but i think it's interesting because you know you have this situation where a lot of foreigners basically are descending on these spanish towns and stuff to go on ayahuasca retreats and there's, you know, is some the status of ayahuasca in a, in a, in a kind of a gray area in Spain? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, actually. I think it's, I think a lot of them are claiming like a religious exemption. Um, but like whether that's like genuine or whatever is up for yeah, debate, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it is in the US. Um, like in the US, you have this crazy situation where the DEA is the arbiter of whether someone's yeah. spiritual belief <laughs> is sincere, <laughs> sincere, which is crazy, right? Um, but yeah, so I think this is interesting, like this kind of like, pushback from local people where some of these like uh, gray areas are being exploited is interesting because on one hand you have some people saying oh it's nimbyism right like you mm -hmm. know they're just mm -hmm. backward but then on the other hand you're like you know this is where these people live right like it's, it's right. ultimately up to them to decide and you yeah. see the same thing in Oregon right like yeah. a lot of the rural counties or whatever they call it in Oregon opted out of measure 109 and it's this difficult balance between you know like uh yeah, I don't know, like between having a statewide policy, but then also allowing local people to decide. I mean, it's yeah, di it is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have a sense of the the proliferation of use in underground settings or recreational settings? Or, I mean, it, it, it's a really opaque area. It's tough yeah. to get any sense of how that, what that market looks like. Yeah, it's difficult. I think, uh, you know, on the retreat side, which obviously isn't really the underground, it's more like, right. you know, arbitrage between different countries' Tourism, rules. Yeah. But we just did a report for, I read a report for Remind Media, mm. and we actually got some data from the folks at Retreat Guru, um, and you can see on that, which is like the Airbnb for retreats, basically, but they gave us some data that just showed the growth of retreats, and it was incredible. Even through COVID-19, obviously there was a reduction in the number of people visiting but it was even robust through there and then mm. it's just continued to increase the number of psychedelic so, specific retreats yeah they passed out because they, they have all other retreats breath work yeah. and yoga but they passed it out and just gave us a psychedelic retreat so it's quite incredible to see you know this rise is very uh, sustainable uh, at least according to their data so i think that's interesting and then yeah obviously the churches like you know we're seeing this huge number of and i think that would be another thing interesting thing to talk to um, a lawyer like Alison Hoots or something yeah. about like I think that's a really cool topic and I don't understand it enough but I've been trying to like keep up with it but yeah. I think that's interesting and then you have you know groups like Church of Asylum with Oxen which is like a whole other story and 
yeah, I think it's interesting. But yeah, I just think this situation where you have this loophole as such, which for some people isn't a loophole, but for other people it is, and they're exploiting it. And yeah, then, yeah. But I also just think, what's at stake there, right? Like, my using that legal loophole to like have a church, which yeah. between me and you isn't really sincere, and we're using it as a way to right, have right. psilocybin. What's at stake? Like, if we draw too much heat to that quote-unquote loophole or like carve out, might we end up? you know, throwing sincere religious use of psychedelics under Absolutely. the bus. And obviously a lot of that is indigenous use. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's my concern. But as I say, I'm not very educated on that. So. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's like, I don't know, this is the, the thing that struck me kind of initially was like, this is going to be a very nuanced and complex and uncertain field or maybe even collection of fields is is a is a better way of thinking about it but anyway this has been fantastic where can this is what every podcast host says where can people find you one of my pluggables <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you want to talk about how can what would you like to shill Josh? <laughs> do you have anything to shill i actually think the best thing to show is uh jobs.psychedelicalpha.com so if you are someone who is keen to get into the space but doesn't see a role that's available to you then like do sign up and join like we call it the talent network because there are a lot of uh, not just companies but mm -hmm. organizations that are looking for like a very specific type of person and we might be able to match you with them so i think that's quite a cool thing and also i just think you know we want to use the platform to showcase like other people's voices mm -hmm. more like i get sick of my actual voice like it's very monotone and british but <laughs> i also get sick of my typing voice. you know my literary voice it's the worst uh, <laughs> yeah. not yours i'm saying mine <laughs> So I think, uh, yeah, I have a, you know, people say they have a face for radio. I, I have a face for radio, but also I have a voice for newsletters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're always looking for, uh, we tried to launch this opinions piece, like section, and I think we've only done like seven of them. Uh -huh. So if anyone's listening and they have like a, an opinion or a perspective on, you know, psychedelics, whether in the medical model or not, then yeah. do reach out josh at psychedelicalpha.com and be happy to like workshop it with you. So yeah. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to, <laughs> good to chat. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.